Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Marxism Podcast. My name is Mark Jarrett, and today, well, first of all, I want to say sorry for being away for such a long time, but not to worry, because today we have double the amount of Marxism. Not only your host is named Mark, but the guest and my very good friend is named Marcus, so that's not a bad thing. Anyways, uh, today we are going to be talking about the far right. Marcus, not too long ago, finished up a master's thesis talking about the far right. And uh, just to get into things, uh, Marcus, thanks for doing this. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. So many people might associate the far right as being uh, a, a reaction to uh, mass immigration and economic depression, but you kind of argue differently in your thesis. Uh, what are some common misconceptions that you think people get wrong about the far right? So I think, and I, I did discuss in my thesis, that, that those are the sort of the main frames through which you try and understand what the far right is. So we tend to talk about um, economic causes, um, sort of socio-political causes to do with racism or you know re reactions uh, regarding immigration. And the interesting thing is, is that when you actually look at instances of the far right and where the far right is strong, there actually doesn't seem to be much of a correlation between the economic success or lack thereof in those countries, the level of immigration in those countries, or, you know, whether or not you might want to say that these cultures are in some way or another racist. Um, and I think one of the interesting things, we'll start with the last one, is that, you know, there's been a tendency to to talk about, you know, countries like we'd hear often like, oh, you know, countries which have far rights. France is a very racist country, people will say. And there's a certain point where, you know, once you've started and we've reached that, once you started describing Sweden as a very racist country, you start to wonder, well, you know, is any country not racist then? I mean, the Swedes, you know, some of the most liberal people out there, it's one of the most sort of left-wing societies. So if, if they're racist, then really everyone must be. So mm. and it's the same, you know, Germany is a very wealthy country, has quite a strong far right. Greece, a very poor one, has a strong far right. Um, France has a high levels of immigration, has a strong far right. Hungary, low levels of immigration, has a strong far right. So there's very little correlation really between successful far right movements and you know levels of immigration, economic success, or even sort of attitudes towards race in any of these countries. So these are the sort of main frames, and neither of them, and none of them really seem to be particularly strong when you actually you know subject them to some sort of scrutiny. You mentioned that the far right has gained some popularity through traditionalism, and you mentioned uh, Marine Le Pen referring to France as old France. Uh, do you think that that is... Why do you think that nostalgia and traditionalism has just kind of become a thing for the far right? Well, the interesting thing is that it doesn't just seem to have become a thing for the far right. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting when you look at... Um, I didn't think of this earlier, but even in in popular culture, the amount of remakes and reboots that you see, and even some of the new things like Stranger Things, is full of callbacks to previous times, right? Yeah. And there is a thought that we live in a sort of age of nostalgia, and I think it's very interesting to think about why that might be. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of optimism, you know, towards the future that may once have existed doesn't anymore. We don't think of the. I mean, none of the science fiction of of my lifetime has been about us having flying cars and living 400 years and you know knowing everything it's more been about you know technological dystopias so we do seem to have a pretty even more broadly in our society a pretty pessimistic view about the future particularly the future of technology and the far right seems to me to be the main at the moment almost the only kind of political manifestation of that kind of insecurity that is sort of to say well 
you know, we're not really too pleased about the direction things seem to be going in. I mean, they seem to see it as, you know, the destruction of heritage. They see the elimination of borders creating a kind of meaningless multicultural soup where there was once sort of their cultures that they value. Um, they seem to see, you know, I mean, all the traditional boundaries, you know, between genders of family being broken down. And I think that adding to, you know, more general kind of um, paranoias about technology and the unsustainability of some of the changes that, you know, we've called progress for such a long time. I think that you're, you're seeing like a fertile ground for someone to sort of push back against that idea of progress. And I think that's just what the far is very good at doing. They have a kind of traditionalist approach and that traditionalism is really just the idea that you kind of juxtapose a kind of idea of, you know, something firm and long lasting and it stands out in the, in this sort of more generally kind of transient culture, which a lot of people seem to think is just kind of hurtling towards, you know, some kind of cataclysm. Um, and there is that sort of resoluteness that tradition offers, which means that it's a very easy thing to call upon when there is a general culture of kind of uneasiness towards the direction that the future seems to be taking. And with the traditionalism, a lot of people may associate people who are conservative or uh, far right in this case mm -hmm. as being older. Uh, but from documentaries that I've seen and talking to different people, it seems to be that uh, the far right is also appealing to a lot of younger people, particularly in you know America, Austria, France. Do you think that it's still an older demographic or do you think younger people are just starting to adopt uh, far-right opinions, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's important to distinguish conservatism and the far-right, particularly in this regard. I think conservatism remains a slightly older kind of thing, demographically, you know. It does seem that people get more conservative over time than as they get older. And I think that in a way, like the alt-right in particular, if not the far-right, seems to be a kind of youthful version of that. So... I know there's a rebelliousness to it, I think, which is why it appeals to a lot of young people that, you know, a lot of you... And it's very well interestingly written about. I mean, he's not someone who has written many things that I've I've liked reading, but, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, <laughs> did write one quite good uh, article called um, The Establishment Conservative's Guide to the Outright, which is very much aimed at people who are more kind of, you know, mainstream traditional conservatives and trying to explain, like, what the outright was. And I think there's an interesting point there where he talks about the fact that, you know, in the 1960s, possibly if you wanted to rebel against your parents, you'd grow your hair long, uh, you know, wear tie-dye shirts and listen to, um, you know, music with African-American singers, right? And that would have been the way that you shocked your parents and, you know, could be rebellious and kind of strike out against the society, which is something that people want to do in adolescence. They want to establish themselves as individuals independently of their parents or the kind of social backdrop. But now, you know, if you want to be sort of um, rebellious and you want to be transgressive like the thing to do is you know to be a bit sexist and make racist jokes and it, that seems to be a lot to me of the appeal of the far is a lot of these people who you know in the 60s would have been listening to the Grateful Dead and now listening to Milo Yiannopoulos and I think that's um, that's a little bit of what that is I also think that there's an extent to which the youth culture politically is more political than it used to be and I think politically also it's quite it's, it's very polarized to the extent that I think that the people who are younger and on the left are much more left-wing than you know older people on the left and I think that in response to that I think the right is going to the right because it's just a sort of arms race of extremism where you know 
young people who are on the left, I mean people my own age who are on the left are much more likely to describe themselves as socialist than, than people who are 15 years older, right? Mm. So, um, you know, it just does seem to be that there is something naturally more extreme about the way that young people approach politics. They may be more radical, um, more bold, possibly less wise, but it does also, I think, seem to be the fact that like, if you're in a more left-wing milieu, which like a lot of young people are in, especially if they're in universities, that maybe you're reacting more viciously because you're kind of generalizing that atmosphere. So, you know, in a university, there's like a lot of risk, I think, for conservatives speaking their minds. It can have quite a high social cost, which means that a lot of conservatives at universities think that like there is a crisis of free speech for conservatives, which is you know, possibly true in the very isolated um, environment of like a particular university campus. But more broadly speaking, that's less the case. And you get a bit older and you leave university and you find that, you know, you can speak your mind and people aren't really going to be pulling fire alarms and asking for trigger warnings. That doesn't happen much in the adult world. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, when they're young, they're not in that world yet. So they think things are much more of a crisis than they are. So they respond in a very um, extreme sort of way. Okay. You mentioned an arms race to the extremes, which I have never really thought of it that way. But do you think, I guess, what people see as the sudden rise of the alt-right, a reaction to things swinging too far left? Possibly. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's a case of things swinging too far to the left so much as I think that it's um, a manifestation of what, and I discussed this in my thesis, of what Heidegger describes as the saving power of technology. So, and I don't want to get too much into Heidegger's view of technology, but let's assume, just for the purposes of this discussion, that it's a sort of analogue for the idea of modernity. So, you know, the modern project is something that's perhaps born, you could argue, I mean, it's certainly born before, but, you know, it comes to fruition with the Enlightenment and this Enlightenment idea of a kind of society governed by reason and by science. So that's the kind of context that Heidegger's writing in. And Heidegger sort of describes the saving power of technology as this, like, capacity that, you know, as you become more knowledgeable about the world as you rationalize more things as you understand things better through reason you begin to start to see the the sort of um, boundaries of rationalism and you start seeing that there are questions that it can't answer and you eventually kind of reason your way beyond rationalism so there's a certain degree to which you can understand that something quite similar is happening with what some people might call neoliberalism liberal democracy the kind of post-Cold War sort of uh, compromise where, you know, we have kind of social safety nets but also generally free economies, right? Is that like, as this has spread to more parts of the world, as those economies have developed, you know, it's become more and more clear for people to see where they maybe don't fulfill people's needs. So, you know, we're beginning to see that there are certain people who seem to be being left behind by the information revolution in technology. You know, there are people who aren't good with computers who are, you know, finding that really they don't have that many opportunities in life anymore. And, you know, people who are good at maths are pulling away from everyone else. And there's a certain degree to which like that, that kind of level of inequality is becoming, you know, more and more prominent sort of social issue. And that's, I think, motivating a lot of people to move to extremes on the left. On the right, I think it's like the, the, the lack of what, what the, the ancient Greeks might have called sort of spiritedness in modernity, where, you know, you've got a bit more money every year. People might live a little bit longer. But, you know, those deeper things that maybe gave more meaning to life are being kind of undermined. So, you know, thinking people used to get a lot of meaning from religion, which is dissipating and uh, losing its way. People used to get a lot from the nation, which is being overwhelmed by markets that are larger than nations themselves. You know, a lot of these old cultures are not viable because, you know, I mean, these sorts of old forms of music, classical music, opera, like they're struggling to survive because they can't get people to buy tickets, so they're kind of dying out. So you've got people sort of saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, 
it's more and more clear what it is that we're in danger of losing with this kind of modern experiment and I think that's causing people in different ways to sort of revolt against it look for alternatives that's not necessarily in and of itself a terrible thing but it's just that the first people to do that are often always going to be very extreme in doing so so I see it less of a kind of swing from right to left and more of a just a sort of both the right and the left beginning to develop kind of revolts against the status quo Mm-hmm. And despite these uh, two extremes, uh, do you ever think the that they kind of overlap in a way? Like I always thought with the right in terms of sticking up for working class people and with the left, uh, you know, the idea of communism, of, um, you know, the proletariat throwing over the bourgeoisie and the government. Um, I mean, that, that, that's one similarity I could think of off the top of my head. Do you think there's anything else that they overlap with at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that they overlap in, as I said, they overlap in their desire to revolt against the uh, you know, status quo they see as inadequate. But I also think that they both, and this is kind of what I went when I was talking about a kind of arms race of extremism, it's, a, it's an arms race of kind of outrage too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, this escalation of rhetoric to the point of absolute ridiculousness where you've got, you know, one side sort of comparing the others to Nazis and you know, the white supremacists and then the other one's going on about white genocide. I mean, the the, the right. kind of hysteria of the rhetoric is I think a big part of this escalation I think that they're both doing that and I think that it's an you know as I said it's uh, it's kind of interesting when I talked about like a kind of revolt against meaninglessness and well you know you can find meaning if you think that the people you're fighting are Nazis suddenly your political engagements become much more meaningful than just you know fighting for your right to like smoke weed I mean which doesn't they you know that's a much less kind of mobilizing thing that gives you much less meaning in your life than, than if you genuinely believe that the people who are trying to stop you are Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that's, that there's a big part of that, that they're both united by this desire to find meaning. They're both um, uh, united by a revolt against the status quo, which they feel, you know, has increasingly obvious sort of, um, you know, diminishing returns and that it's unsustainable. So I think there's a lot in common that's outside of the absolute substance of what they're arguing for. I think the substance is very different, but I think their means as well, and the fact that they seem to both be willing to kind of steamroll democracy if necessary, that's uh, something that's shared and is concerning. Uh, with the two extremes, do you think they're being criticized fairly? Some people might argue that the far right is criticized a lot more than the far left, and maybe some people might think vice versa. Do you think that the criticism is distributed fairly? No, I, well, yes and no, and I'll, I'll give you the yes answer and the no answer, I guess. So, I mean, the yes answer is that, you know, there is a certain myth that is often put around in conservative circles that, you know, you can't express conservative opinions, and there'll be this or that sort of uh, consequence if you do, which will, you know, prevent you from being able to speak freely. And this is true for certain people. I think it's true if you're an undergraduate student at a sort of left-wing university that you know your grades will suffer if you're if some of your professors know you're a conservative and it's not true of all of them it's not as widespread as I think some people make out but definitely in my own experience there I think probably over the course of six years at Carlton I maybe had three or four professors who I felt would have taken you know great marks away from me for being conservative if they'd known but I had probably 30 to 40 professors in my time at Carlton and so it's not a large percentage but it happens it's certainly easier to just go along and be very left-wing and progressive and you know but people most people don't spend all of their lives at university and I think that once you get out into the wider world you can by and large speak your mind so you know I don't entirely think that there is any kind of 
sort of suppression of conservative voices which has caused this backlash which I think is the kind of argument that often people make but you know I think and this is a, a more important argument is I think that there's definitely a lack of even-handedness when we talk about the extremes of these political movements I think there's often this uh, assumption that when people attack the kind of extremes of the, the left that well you know maybe these people are actually you know racist or sexist maybe they, they you know because the left claims to be fighting racism and sexism that maybe the people who criticize them are just closet racist or sexist and that's an idea that's given kind of a, like a hearing in you know respectable places. And also, I think that there's clearly been a reckoning with the dangers that the extremes of the right can bring. That hasn't we haven't had that same reckoning with the left. You know, I mean, we talk about Hitler constantly, and uh, it's not the wrong to talk about Hitler, but we talk about Hitler constantly. We talk much less about the Soviet Union. We don't talk about the gulags anywhere near as much as we probably should. Right. So I think there is a degree to which that you know it's okay for someone to say. I mean, there was someone on the BBC arguing with me, Piers Morgan, and she says, you know, well, I'm, I'm literally a communist. Like, can you imagine someone saying I'm literally a Nazi? You know, what the response would be. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there is, a, there is an unfairness about that. There's a lack of even-handedness. But uh, you shouldn't, in my opinion, see that as like a kind of conspiratorial narrative to say that like conservatives are being, you know, their voices are being suppressed and they're being pushed down. It's, it's more that there's just a sort of, a, an idea that you know the default is sort of on the left and that you know it's something slightly odd about being on the right and there's something to be suspicious about and that, you know you have to kind of prove that you're not a fascist or you have to sort of prove that you're not really Hitler deep down you know mm-hmm. whereas like no one has that same expectation of left-wing politicians I don't think right I guess that would depend though where you are I mean if you talk to somebody who lives in Poland I mean they might have a different opinion on communism than somebody who is from yeah, you know, like other places, right? No, yeah, the people who, who got to experience that particular utopia seem to be much more negative about it than the people who just theorized about it. I mean, yeah. that's, that's almost universally true. Um, and you're right, I think, to say that, you know, particularly in Poland now even, or possibly in Hungary, that, you know, there are, I think left-wing journalists probably do have some concerns that maybe right-wing journalists don't, but I'm in, in the context of Western Europe and North America, I think right. there's definitely a sense to which, you know, you can, I mean, uh, Diane Abbott, the shadow foreign secretary in the United Kingdom, you know, who was on television giving a defense of Chairman Mao, and that's, and she's still in her job. She, she still would be our foreign secretary if Jeremy Corbyn was prime minister, a woman who, you know, defended, <laughs> defended Mao on national television, yeah. the biggest mass murder in human history. And she was putting the case for him, and she could be our foreign secretary, and there's no outrage about that. Whereas, you know, if there was someone in the Conservative Party who once knew someone, who once knew someone who liked something on Facebook by someone who was, you know, the second cousin of someone who was a neo-Nazi, well, you'd never hear the end of it, and they would they would never have a political career. So there is definitely as an imbalance there, right? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, I guess with demographics, um, do you think that the far right is as big as it's made out to be, bigger, smaller? Do you think the media over plays it on average what do you think the the figures are i guess well you won't know the exact figures but no. what's your opinion on it it's really interesting because you know it does depend i mean it's interesting because i was de- it, the way almost the way that i was um defining the far right you know talking about this kind of revolt against an idea of a progress that's unsustainable i actually think that you could argue that even the majority of people are beginning to feel that way about about progress i think that you know the extreme some of the extreme rhetoric that comes from progressives on university campuses is deeply alienating to anyone who isn't you know pretty committed to quite far left-wing ideas 
and you know I think to certain people that makes you far right I think to certain people if you're not entirely on board with whatever the kind of you know cause celebre of the of, of the progressive left is at any moment then you know you're far right because you're either with them or you're far right that would make it the majority I think if you're going to look more at votes I mean it seems to me that you know there's a lot of people voting for Le Pen who didn't really like her all that much there's a lot of people voting for Le Pen you know not agreeing with large parts of her policies maybe only agreeing with one or two things but at the same time you know there was a certain amount of fortune for Macron that he was able to have the benefits of of you know contacts in both major parties but was able to position himself as an outsider I think that helped him to a great deal so Le Pen could have done better on an ordinary election cycle that was a strange one in 2016 in France I think it's the same with Trump I think that you know Trump it's difficult to say is 48% of America Trumpers. I mean, many yeah. of them seem to dislike him. He would probably have lost against a better opponent. He would have lost if Hillary Clinton had made some slightly different decisions. But does he represent something that's important? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's impossible to sort of put a figure on it or to say like, oh, you know, because it does depend a little bit on what it is. And I think it is hard to define. But it seems to me that there is a lot, there are a lot of people who are, and I would say almost a majority of people, really, who were, who were looking for some sort of alternative to attach themselves to. And the far right, in spite of having a lot of aspects of it that are kind of obnoxious to most people, is managing to draw quite a lot of support and I think quite a lot of sympathy outside of the people who will vote for them. I think there are a lot of people who still vote you know, conservative, but who have quite strong feelings towards UKIP in, in England. I think there are a lot of people mm-hmm. in France who would have voted for Macron, voted for Fillon, but actually, you know, if it had come down to um, Hollande or Benoit Hamon versus, um, you know, uh, Le Pen, probably would have voted for Le Pen. So it's difficult to know because I don't think that these are movements that are so... Uh, these movements have softened to a great degree since, like, you know, we tend to compare them with the, the far-right movements of the 1930s, but they're not kind of quasi-militant sort of, you know, groups that march around in, in uniform on the streets. I mean... They're, they've softened their image, and you know, they're, they're, particularly in Europe, they've softened quite a few of their positions to the point that actually they're quite capable of capturing large numbers of people who probably you wouldn't if you just like polled them on their opinions on various subjects, classify them as mm-hmm. far right. But they may well actually, you know, for various different reasons, vote for Le Pen or UKIP or Orbán or whoever it might be. Yeah, and you've mentioned before in previous conversations that uh, a lot of the uh, National Front's economic policies were like almost socialist yeah I mean that was one of the interesting things is that you know it, uh, the, again it's not a word I use myself very much but you know it's neoliberalism the opposition to that comes from the far right as well as from the left and you find you know criticisms of corporations having too much power criticisms about bankers having too much power mm-hmm. uh, you know you see that come from people on the far right cr- problems that they have with you know political donors having too much influence or like you know these various stakeholders being opposed to free trade with other countries, being skeptical about the benefits of free trade, wanting to tax the rich a lot—that's um, something that the far right, you know, far right parties often share with the left. And yeah, if you look at the economic platform of, of Marine Le Pen's National Front, it's much closer to the Socialist Party than it is to any conservative party you can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think Viktor Orbán in Hungary becoming the prime minister and with the pretty good result of the National Front in France. Do you think that there's going to be more far-right parties who are going to be getting similar results in the future, or do you think this is just uh, a trend and it's going to dwindle? What do you think is going to be the future for some of these parties? Well, it's funny because I, I, I mean, I wrote my dissertation on the far-right, and it's something that I want to carry on studying. 
But there's a part of me that's sort of fearful that I could end up like some of these Sovietologists, you know, having a sort of degree where you specialize in something that doesn't exist anymore. It's like very few people saw the end of the Soviet Union coming. And it just shows these surprises can happen. And the far right has looked like it's been on the rise for a long time. In many ways, seems to have hit a barrier. And I think we saw that a bit with Marine Le Pen. There's two reasons why I think she hit a barrier. First is that it just seemed that these parties are popular enough to do pretty well in the first rounds in French elections. They're popular enough to surprise people, humiliate one of the major parties, but they don't seem to be able to get over the threshold to actually win elections in most countries. I mean, we've seen them do it in a couple. I mean, Orbán's really the, 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 the most sort of far-right person I think you can think of really leading a yeah. sort of Western country. But, you know, there are, there are arguments to be made that the government of Poland could be considered far-right, for example. I wouldn't myself. But, you know, we, we've seen some of the softer kind of parties on the right maybe making some gains. And it's important to bear in mind that, you know, in the grand scheme of the sort of history of far-right parties, I mean, the French National Front is soft. Like, compared with even the French National Front of 25 years ago, which was full of Holocaust deniers, you know. Mm. Like, it's very, it's, it's, it's much, much moderated in the last few years, and it's had to moderate to get to this point. And it seems to me that it would, in order to actually be able to get to the point of winning an election, the National Front would have to moderate further. It would have to moderate to the point where it stopped really being recognisably the National Front. It would probably have to get rid of the name, which it's already done. It's now the, um, the Rassemblement National now. So they've already changed their name. They probably would have to get rid of Le Pen as leader. They would have to really clean out any remnants of the old Le Pen dynasty, and you know all of those people associated with Algeria and the, you know the uh, conquest of Algeria. All these people um, associated with Holocaust denial and the Vichy regime. All of that would have to be expunged, and what you would end up with is just a sort of you know populist, socially conservative party, which would be much more kind of like you know running a campaign much more like the campaign of Doug Ford in the Ontario election than something recognisably kind of far right. So that's one reason to believe that they might, might go away, that there just seems to be this ceiling. And the other is that you know a lot of these parties have seemed to have shown that they're very good at protesting but not really having any answers. And you know it's amazing to think of in the context of the second round of the French election that as soon as Marine Le Pen, as soon as it's, very, it's a definite lesson, I think, for us to learn in how we talk to these people, especially people who don't like the far right. You know, she's always been viewed as this brilliant media performer because every time she gets in front of a microphone, the question is just seven variations of, well, you're racist, aren't you? No, but really, you're racist, aren't you? And she's very good at answering that question now because she spent her entire life answering that question. Mm-hmm. So she's super well-practiced at it. And she gets out of, you know, she, and, she, and people always thought she was this brilliant media performer. And the minute she got asked a question that wasn't just some kind of accusation of racism, the minute that someone said, well, you know, what are you going to do? Like, we've got a pensions crisis. Like, you know, how are we going to finance our pay? Uh, ensure that we can continue to finance our pensions? She didn't have any answers at all. Right. And I think that just shows to show that a lot of these parties, you know, and it's true, I think, of most protest parties, that maybe these far-right parties aren't all that much more serious than, you know, some of the protest parties that you'd had uh, in the past. Even right. if you think of the Greens, I mean, they could just be like one-issue immigration parties that might be able to influence mainstream political parties the way the Greens did. But you know, it could well be that we end up seeing like you know far-right parties in Europe ending up in a situation like the Greens, where they're these permanent kind of little parties, but they never really threaten to you know, have power anymore. Right. That's a pretty interesting point, though, mm-hmm. that she got pretty good at answering those questions on racism, because a lot of people throw the word Nazi, fascist around and stuff like that. But if they people asked questions regarding their actual policies they might well i read an interesting thing about this i can't remember the name of the lady who wrote it she's a um, a queer theorist and she 
she'd um sorry a wet theorist queer theorist okay. is a sort of thing queer theory i don't really know how to describe it or even remember what her name is but it's um she wrote this like quite interesting essay that i read where she was talking about two types of reading she talked about the paranoid reader and the engaged reader and the paranoid reader is the person who you know when they're confronted with a text that they think they're going to disagree with they read it with this almost like paranoid mentality of like i know that this person's a racist or a sexist and and they're just like picking through the way that you know a completely paranoid person would like dig through their i don't know their like their wife's internet history to find something incriminating and then they would mm. find something that's not really that incriminating but make it incriminating you know it's like the same kind of mentality they're reading through a text and they'll find something and they'll be like ah this you know could be construed as some kind of dog whistle kind of sexist comment you know and that was the paranoid reader and i think that there's a, there's a degree to which that kind of reading style that kind of approach to thought has become so ingrained in so much over prog- the progressive left that it literally is just a constant and I was, uh, it's, it's not very nice to say, but it's, you know, it's often the thing when they make fun of like millennials going into the job market, you know, and they say, well, what are your skills? And it's like, well, my skills are that, you know, I'm extremely good at finding really creative ways to call you racist. And that that is a lot of like the idea of the intellectual life is just people who, that's their one thing. That's what they're good at, you know. They're good at taking whatever argument you've made and finding a way to twist your words or finding a way to just be able to call you a racist. And, you know, that stops working at a certain point, right? It's right. not particularly convincing. And I think that there's there's a there's a point where that realization has to be made, not just on the progressive left, but I think by anyone who would be an opponent of the far right. And it seems to me that once that realization is made, then that would be like a big that that would be something of a crisis because the entire I think far right discursive um, identity has now been basically well we get called racist all the time. That's sort of our thing, you know. We're the people who dare to say the things that get us called racist. We're the people who, you know, take on these these bullies who go around calling people racist, and that's more or less what they do. And I think that if you if you pivot from accusing them of being racist to actually like questioning, you know, whether or not they have ideas that would actually help at all, mm. then you know, it's, I'm somewhat skeptical that they would be able to maintain even the levels of popularity they have now. It's kind of funny you mentioned that because as much as I don't necessarily want to admit it, but like Donald Trump would kind of say the same thing throughout his entire campaign. You know, the media would always just like spin a way of saying something yeah. that he said. Yeah. And it's only it's potent kind of, to the extent that there's a kernel of truth to it, right? You'll, yeah, and that's what people kind of... I guess when you tell people something, they start kind of looking for it. Yeah. And that that kind of became a reality with his campaign. Well, and I think it was it was... It was not an effective strategy for undermining Donald Trump, because you know in, in, a large part of his support were racist, frankly, and would only like him more if they felt that he was making dog whistle racist statements. There was a part that just like is so fed up of hearing those sorts of arguments that they're completely closed off to it. And then there are the people who you know maybe are a little bit liberal, but they just felt that it was a little bit extreme to be you know sort of. I mean. I'm trying to think of like the worst example uh, of it, but there were times when he would say things that were a bit sort of silly and slightly innocuous. Of course. Yeah. I mean, even the, the, the pussy grabbing comment, you know, like the thing where then we're like, oh, so Donald, you've raped these women. And it's like, I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, that's the, the, I'm not sure that that's really what he was saying, right? And I think a lot of people would look at it and they'd say, yeah, he was making like a pretty vulgar comment. But the fact that instead of just saying, Donald, you made a very vulgar comment, you know, Anderson Cooper said, Donald, you've bragged about raping women. It's like, okay, yeah, this is... This is like bad faith. Like this is a pretty extreme sort of way to be going about this. And I think that made people who didn't necessarily like him sympathize with him because it just seemed like, him, which is odd because he was such a unpleasant person and he was victimizing people all the time. But it made him almost seem like a victim, right? And I think that helped him to a great degree. Yeah. So yeah, it's a classic example of like if they'd spent less time 
trying to do some kind of gotcha moment where they show what a terrible person he is and they've done more time questioning about like you know what kind of qualifications this man actually has to be president of the USA he may well not have won the election or even the Republican nomination but despite like policies that might work do you think that um, people also put in like the moral character into it as well so even though he said that and uh, it was during a period where he wasn't running for president they still think okay is this guy really trustworthy i mean he's he's you know bragging about assaulting women i guess well yeah my point there wasn't that it wasn't something that they should have used at all right my point is that there's a degree to which this man was saying bad things and was doing bad things but the response to those things was opportunistic so that you know like you can attack someone for doing something wrong right it doesn't and and you can attack them you know in a way that's sort of in bad faith it doesn't make what they did right, but it does still mean that you lose a lot of the credibility you have when you attack them. So, you know, if sure. someone had just said, like, Donald, like, just play the tape and don't say anything, right? He said this, play the tape. It speaks for itself. Mm. I think that would have been much more effective than, you know, what ended up happening, which was Anderson Cooper sort of saying, okay, I need to make this worse than it already is. So I'm actually not just going to show you that Trump said this. I'm going to strongly implicate that he actually did these things. Yeah. You know? And it seems to happen on both sides, too. I mean, even during that campaign, uh, People were questioning Hillary's health and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I just referred to Hillary Clinton on a first name basis, which is kind of weird. But it is weird that we all do that now. It's yeah, like she is the 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 world's like I know her. grandmother. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I guess both sides do it. I mean, even CNN does that with uh, Melania Trump. Didn't hold Donald's hand going down the or you know yeah, Fox doing know. something. I don't know if it's always been like that or if that's a new thing. But I think it seems to me to be very dis- distressing that. We can't seem to have conversations about these people, which is just about you know their jobs and their actual functions. It has to be about the family and the dog, and <laughs> I, it's madness. But it's a very American, and it comes from the fact that the Americans, you know, they. I mean, this is one of the same reasons why I think they obsess over the British royalty. It's like they 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 almost want to have a monarchy, and they almost want the presidential family to become like a royal family, you know, and and it's all well and good, you know, people obsessing over Harry. Uh, Prince Harry marrying someone or, you know, who he's dating, this, that, and the other. But, you know, these people don't have any executive power in the UK, so in a sense, that's fine. They, they, that could be what they're about. But to me, it's just a distraction. You know, if the person's actually got executive power, then his relationship with his wife, you know, it's like irrelevant. I mean, really. And, you know, whether, like, like Hillary made Bill sleep on the couch, I mean, who cares? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Right. And I think there was a, there was a degree to which, you know, Clinton... Clinton suffered from that quite badly, I think. I think that she was uh, didn't help herself, though. Like She was, in many ways, a very unlikable figure. And I think she's also... She just had, like, decades of stories about her sort of, you know, slightly corruptness or unpleasantness or, you know, there was scandal after scandal after scandal going back so far. And that's a little bit what I mean when I say that there's, you know, a huge amount of, um, of, of, of luck involved in these sorts of things. Like, there was so many other circumstances where Trump wouldn't have won that election and it's all these little things kind of added up mm-hmm. it's very difficult to like imagine that there was just this far right wave which took Trump to victory it's like Trump would have lost yeah. that election I think if you redid it ten times he would have lose it nine times just everything came together for him that one time timing yeah, yeah uh, I guess bringing things back to the <laughs> the far right part of things but mm-hmm. uh, why like with why do you think um, a lot of these far-right groups, I find, kind of take the bait when it comes to dealing with Russia? Like, they they like dealing with Russia. Like, why do you think that is, even though it's pretty well known and Russia's been 
I think, somewhat obvious in showing that they want these very nationalistic parties to be in power. Why do you think Marine Le Pen goes to Russia and visits Putin? Because it has a lot to do with um, the way in which Russia has become the sort of focal point for uh, opposition to this sort of progressive um, project of modernity that I'm talking about. And you see this a lot if you read Alexander Dugan, he's, he's, he's not actually as influential as I think people think he is in Russia, but he is this, he's a Russian philosopher, he okay. was for a time quite close with the Valdai group and with Putin. Oh, and I think I know who, yeah. Yeah, I you're talking about and he's, yeah. he's a sort of philosopher of this, of this idea of a Russia that can regenerate itself after the Cold War by being a kind of bastion of, uh, you know, a, a kind of bullock against this, this kind of capitalistic neoliberal progressivism that's coming from the West. So this is why you've seen a kind of religious revivalism in Russia. It's not, and it, I mean, it obviously comes from the fact that there was, a, there was a real sort of nihilism after the fall of the Soviet Union, because... And communism had been more or less replaced religion in Russia, and it had been so central to the entire kind of, you know, moral worldview of the Russians that when it collapsed, they were left with sort of nothing. So there was a lot of conservatives, conservatism emerging after that, of people like Dugin who were sort of saying, well, you can turn back to the Russian Orthodox Church and look at, you know, traditionalism and all of these sort of family and church and God and you know, um, duty and patriotism. A lot of these older ideas is how you can kind of you know, rebuild uh, out of this sort of nihilism because everything's just been shattered after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I think that there are a lot of people in the far right who kind of feel like a similar story has occurred in the West. You know, they think that, well, you know, we've everything, like the churches of the churches disintegrated, you know, people aren't religious anymore, people don't care about their country anymore, families are breaking down everywhere, parents are abandoning their kids, you know. People are getting divorced all over the place. I mean, there's all these sorts of things that people feel and then they see Russia as a sort of you know, shining beacon of this place where there is like a, a dynamic sort of, you know, revival of traditional conservatism that doesn't seem to just be endlessly fighting losing battles, which is what kind of conservatism often is seen as in the West, right, constantly. Uh, I think there, there was a comment who also described that, like constantly taking up lost causes is sort of the essence of being a conservative. None of that in Russia, right? It seems to be like this really powerful thing and Putin seems like this really powerful figure. And the Russians are, you know, interested in staking a kind of reclaiming their kind of global importance. And they're not going to do that by threatening people militarily anymore. And they've realized that a way that you can do this is to try to sort of undermine and destabilize Western political systems by empowering these parties that threaten to kind of undermine and, you know, shake things up in a very crazy way. So it's not all uh, cynicism. I think that actually a lot of wealthy people in Russia, including people around Putin, you know, genuinely feel that they're doing good work by supporting all of these parties that we consider to be far right but I think they consider to be a sensible resistance against the sort of what they see as a kind of mad progressivism that wants to destroy any and all boundaries that prevent you know people from just indulging their every whim um, uh, and then it's also partly that they think that this is the way that Russia can kind of you know undermine its enemies and it can re-establish itself as a great power you know not by threatening people with nuclear weapons anymore but by you know trying to promote discord with okay. Western nations yeah yeah do you think uh, I guess with people associate left wing or far left as always seeing people in groups and seeing people as uh, well yeah basically just labeling people as a group and then mm -hmm. the right sees people more as individuals do you think that has also benefited the right and the far right more and more i don't think the far right necessarily is individualistic though 
I mean, it's an interesting thing to think. Well, I don't know. Well, I'm just like if I mean, you, like organizations like Britain First always yeah. say, "Oh, we have people from India and Pakistani backgrounds in our groups, so you know we don't really need to look at someone necessarily based on the way left wing people do." Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing to have been brought up. I mean, I think there are people who are like Jordan Peterson um, who are you know probably wrongly associated with the far right who are clearly like you know seeing individualism under threat from kind of collectivism of identity politics Um, but interestingly you know and this is what I mean when I say that like a lot of what we associate now with the right is not traditionally associated with the right it's not particularly conservative you know a lot of this is um, comes from a kind of decision or a position that was occurred to really it was came to fruition really with Reagan in America and with Thatcher in Britain of a kind of new conservatism which uh, you know was individualistic was to do with free markets and actually traditionally conservatism has been quite resistant to free markets quite resistant to individualism uh, seeing them as sorts of threats to you know church family country like these collective bonds that um, conservative traditionalism has often been about defending and I think that the far right, you know, insofar as a lot of it is rooted in traditionalism, is actually, I think, quite anti-individualistic. It's, you know, it's not right. To, I don't think it's entirely right to say, oh, they're just doing identity politics like the left, but for white people. I mean, Which I think that term is beaten to death. Yeah, there's a know? certain amount of truth to that. But it is the fact that, like, there, the, the, this is, you know, I mean, nationalism is almost by its nature a collective identity. But it's also, like, it's pushing back against a, a, what, what they see as a neoliberal status quo, which is dominated right. by a kind of a-religious individualism. And I think that... You know, uh, I don't entirely remember what your question was now, but like, the, yeah, I don't necessarily think that it's an individualistic response. Yeah, I think it's a, the far right is a response against individualism. Okay, well, that basically did answer it. Just yeah. basically saying that um, left wing looks at things as groups and right wing looks at individuals. That's the common argument. It's a common argument, but the far right, I think, is seeing is, is, is still group minded. Yeah. Group oriented, yeah, group minded, as you said. Uh, do you think that while these extremes are happening more and more and the arms race to extremism between the left and right, do you think people are just going to throw up their hands and go, you know what, I just don't care anymore, I'm out, and abandon politics altogether? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, because, you know, often when people discuss what they think a better politics would be, uh, these people will often then also talk about wanting more mass participation. And I think one of the things that's interesting, although it seems very cynical, is that actually I think this kind of pol- as politics becomes more like reality television, it becomes more mudslinging and insults and you know Twitter fights. I can actually see um, public participation politics increasing rather than decreasing. I mean, it seems mm. to me that like you know it's one of the things that the ancients uh, sort of felt about politics that actually the the more that a politics becomes mass politics, the worse the quality of the political debate is likely to be, not better. And that's a fairly undemocratic position to take, but it's one that I think is pretty legitimate. Is to say that you know. I would like to think that people are going to be getting turned off politics by, you know, seeing um, Donald Trump make fun of, you know, a woman's appearance or seeing someone make fun of Donald Trump's hair. Or, you know, if Kanye West were to get involved and we would have Kanye versus Oprah in the next election, I would yeah. like to think people would say, no, 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 that's silly. We're not being a part of this. I don't believe, I don't, I'm not confident that would be the case, though. You know? yeah. I quite see actually the era of like 85%, you know, turnout might not come until we do have Oprah Winfrey running against <laughs> Kanye West, yeah. you know. That might be what it takes to get a lot of people to care about politics for it to actually just meld with celebrity, yeah. which has been threatening to do for a very long time. I mean, Obama was like seen by a lot of people to be the kind of Hollywood president, but right. like Trump is in, I think, a much more literal sense of kind of celebrity president. 
and yeah. there's no reason to believe that that trend is going to end and I think that's a more dangerous trend than, than you yeah. know even really the Front National in France like, yeah. I think it's much the entertainment politics mer- mer- immersion in uh, America is terrifying yeah that was like part of my first episode on this podcast actually yeah. but the uh, yeah it's funny you mentioned that though because I remember Roger Stone I think in a documentary he was <laughs> talking about how why he pushed for Trump to be elected was he recognized that enter- the entertainment industry is more influential than government institutions and that that has a lot of leverage in getting people's attention to well, and I think know, that's a really vote. interesting thing to bring up because it's like there's, there's a big underlying the debate about the far left and the far right is often another debate about where power lies in our society yeah um, and the far right you know will often say well look we're you know the kind of plucky underdogs all the power in society is arraigned against us and if you think about it like you know their view of where power comes from isn't totally silly right they're recognizing that yeah you know there's not like a lot of the far left or there's not a lot of you know militant um, you know third wave feminists in government for example uh, so it seems a bit silly when you start going on about you know like you're going to be being oppressed by third wave feminists I mean how many third wave feminists are writing laws right N- not that many so it seems a bit silly so if you understand power as being something kind of institution through the government then it seems like the far right is sort of rebelling against a kind of chimera except that you know if you think about what you're saying about the, the and I think Roger Stone is there's a lot that's right about that society yeah. is probably being changed more by the opinions of celebrities the values being pushed in television and in films um, you know uh, uh, and the sorts of political causes that are being taken up by people who are famous and influential you know, that's probably having as much influence than who's sitting on you know the Supreme Court yeah and I think until you can sort out this idea of you know who actually has influence and power in politics who should what responsibilities come with that then it becomes really difficult because people are always going to be able to say well we're the underdogs and that's what you see with the far left and the far right and the progressive left and to an extent the center right too they're all more or less claiming that they're the underdogs and that everyone's you know everything's arraigned against them and when you believe that then you know well if you're fighting a much stronger power then you, you can convince yourself that it's justifiable to use tactics you wouldn't otherwise use you know anything goes if you're fighting for survival and people can say they're fighting for survival all the time because we really are not theorizing power particularly sensibly it's true yeah it's true uh and i believe i remember reading somewhere that more people listen to Infowars than cnn you know oh i wouldn't know but that seems that seems like possible because it is incredible the amount of nonsense which makes you wonder do does the far right i guess use media more effectively especially since more people are probably on the internet than watching tv the far right is excellent at using media and that's one of the reasons i think why they're able to make so much ground on the right because the traditional right is poor at using media Hmm. it's been a problem i think for conservatives for a long time that they're not particularly good at this kind of social media politics they're not even really haven't even really begun all that good at mass politics despite the fact that they've been engaged with it for such a long time they haven't recognized the importance of having conservative you know celebrity spokesmen they haven't realized or really ever been able to action any realization they might have on the importance of you know getting cultural content out there that supports your values without being overtly conservative Mm -hmm. it's like every children's television program you know it's got that's never overtly left-wing but has a slightly left-wing sort of thing being like oh you know you need to reject those people who you know want to want to have more than you or be better than you you know everyone's equal and that kind of thing it's like it's not put there in a political way but it's it's like something that the left's known to do for a very long time that it's not just about 
political debates. It's about shaping culture. And the centre-right has been poor at it, and the far-right are good at it. And the far-right are doing that in a way that's, you know, a lot of it seems really, really silly. And I think that we tend to, um, with people like Miley Anopoulos, so you tend to say, okay, that's just sort of daftness, it's not that important. People also tend to focus on this idea of Russians hacking into our democracy. It's actually much more about just shaping the way that arguments take place, you know. A lot of this stuff, like, I mean, Gamergate's a really good example, something that on its face of it isn't about politics at all, but was actually used, like, very intelligently to kind of radicalise people against progressive politics. It was, well, when you say radicalised, but it was a way of crystallising to people this idea that progressive politics is an attack on something that these people liked, just that kind of gaming culture. And, you know, that's really something that, the, 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 that's something new, I think, to see sort of the right or a part of the right being good at using social media to kind of kind of influence um, the culture of politics. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that even though despite the two extremes that they might come together in a way and compromise on a few things and not necessarily agree with everything, but there's a possibility where things will stop having this increasing polarization and people will just go, okay, you know what, we're, we're ruining things, let's just compromise on some stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually you'll have to. I don't think you'll have, uh, you know, a synthesis or the parties joining together or anything like that. And I don't think you'll stop having this debate in our politics because I think that this is... And I, 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 in a weird way, I don't think that our political structures have quite comprehended this yet, but I think that they're moving towards a comprehension of the fact that the fundamental question of our time is going to be you know, do we need to radically overhaul our entire approach to, um, you know, this entire kind of liberal democratic project? Like, can it continue? Can we tweak it in certain ways? Or do we actually have to completely get rid of this and, you know, start afresh with something new or have some kind of radical change? I, I think that's a question that's just going to have to be answered because you can't keep just sort of drifting uh, in the way that we are, in, you know, increasingly alienating larger and larger groups of people. Eventually that's unsustainable. But, you know, it has to be said that we've been through periods of massive polarization before. Um, we've got through them before. And, the, you know, I don't, I don't envision... Like, there are certain people talking about the possibility of the second American Civil War. I don't envision something like that occurring. I mean, I think that... Um, I don't even think that, you know, these California secessionist-type movements are likely to go very far. I Probably think that not. in the end we will pull ourselves back before it gets to that. But there are definitely confrontations that had to be had. And if we are not able to have them in a sensible, democratic and respectful way, then they will be had in a violent way. And that's, I think, probably the thing that concerns me most. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, we're going to wrap this bad boy up. Okay. So thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, so uh, check out Markson Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, all that stuff. Write a review, like, subscribe, share, you know, all those things that help me out. And in the meantime, we are out of here. Thank you.